My dad was a jack of all trades. He was one of those men who could do almost anything. But one of the things that he was really good at was building carpentry. He could build furniture, but he could also build a house. He knew how to frame it in. He could put a roof on. He could drywall it. He could put the floors down. He could plummet. He could run the electrical. He could pretty much do it all. It never ceased to amaze me as I would drive by places as I grew up and I would see a vacant lot and on that vacant lot you would have lumber and you would have wire and you would have nails and you would have all of these things but by themselves they were nothing sitting on that vacant lot. But as the weeks and the months passed and I would drive by that place that stuff that was nothing by itself became a beautiful building, a beautiful house. Now, if you have your Bibles this morning, I want you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. We're in a series that we've called Aliens, How to Survive in a Hostile World. Because the Bible teaches that this world is not our home. We're aliens here. We're strangers here. And this world will always be hostile to those of us who believe the gospel, who follow Jesus Christ. So how do we survive in a hostile world? That's what Peter writes about in this letter that we call 1 Peter. And thus far, we've learned two things. We learned, first of all, that we've got to remember who we are. And Peter says that we are chosen by God We are born into his family, and because of that, we have a priceless inheritance awaiting us. You see, as we live our lives, we don't live looking at our past hurts. We don't even focus on our present joys. We focus on what is ahead because of who we are in Jesus And that takes us to the second thing that Peter teaches if we're going to survive in a hostile world. And that is we live with the future in mind. And Peter tells us about two future events that affect each and every one of us. He tells us about the revelation of Jesus Christ when Jesus comes back a second time. And understand Jesus is coming back again. And the Bible says... That when he does, when he is revealed, that even those who have pierced his hands will see him. And the nations of the world will mourn because of him. Jesus is coming back. But there's another event that the Bible tells us about. And that's the judgment of God. The judgment seat of Christ. Now there are some people that say that, that only the lost will stand before the judgment seat of God. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account. Each and every one of us will give an account for for every word that we've said, every thought that we've had, every deed that we've done. We will give an account of that. And so Peter says in light of that, in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back and, and there is a judgment to come, we should live our lives as obedient children We should live in reverent fear. We should show sincere love to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we should crave the pure spiritual milk of God's word. We do that 
because we live with the future in mind. We know the future is coming. But today I want us to focus on the third thing that Paul or Peter teaches in this book, and that is this. If we want to survive in a hostile world, we must get connected to a spiritual community. You see, God didn't create us to live in isolation. He created us to live in community. And that community is the local church, the body of Christ. God expects each and every one of us who are part of his family, who call ourselves Christians, to be connected to a local community, a local church. Now listen, no church is perfect because we are imperfect people. That's what some people say when, when they say they don't get involved in church. Well, the church is messed up. Yeah, the church is messed up because you're messed up. And I'm messed up. We're all messed up. We're imperfect people. And there's some people that go from church to church looking to, for that perfect church. And, and what they don't realize is that when they get to that church, they've messed it up because they're not perfect. You see, there are no perfect churches, but God tells us, nevertheless, that the church is a work in progress. God is sanctifying. He is building his church, and he expects us to be a part of it. In the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says, do not neglect meeting together with other believers, especially since the day of Christ's return is drawing near. You see, as we get closer and closer to the return of Christ, I'm convinced that the world is become, going to become more and more hostile to the gospel and those who proclaim the gospel. And the temptations to turn from Christ are going to become more and more intense. So we need the church. We need to gather together. Maybe you've never thought about this, but the letters that we read in the New Testament, the letters that Paul wrote, that Peter wrote, that John wrote, that Jude wrote, that James wrote, those letters, those epistles, those letters were written to churches that would meet together in worship. And as they met together in worship, the letter would be read to them. You see, God expects us to be committed to connecting with other believers. And so if you're here or you're watching online and you're not really connected like you know you need to be, get connected. Make a commitment. Now, if your Bible is open, I want you to follow along as we begin in verse 4 of chapter 2. Listen to what Peter says. He says, you are coming to Christ who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priest. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. As the scriptures say, I'm placing a cornerstone in Jerusalem, chosen for great honor, and anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Yes, you who trust him recognize the honor God has given him. But for those who reject him, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And he is the stone that makes people stumble, the rock that makes them fall. 
They stumble because they do not obey God's word. And so they meet the fate that was planned for them. But you are not like that. For you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God. For he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Once you had no identity as a people, now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I warn you as, as temporary residents and foreigners, aliens, to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then, even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. Now notice what Peter says in verse five. He says, you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. Now don't miss that. God is in the process of building a spiritual temple. Now the Bible teaches that you individually are the temple of God because God's spirit lives in you. You are a walking, talking temple of God. Individually, God's spirit lives in you. You are to be holy because God is in you. You individually are a temple of God. But the Bible also teaches that we collectively are the temple of God. And every time Someone turns from their sin and trusts Christ. They become a stone in that temple that God is building. You see, we are the temple of God. We are the church of God. We are the people of God that he is building into a glorious temple. Now, Peter teaches us three things about this temple that God is building that you need to hear. And if you ever leave Northside and you are looking for another church, you need to make sure that that church recognizes these three things because if they don't, then they are not seeking to be the temple that God has called them to be. And so what are these three things? Peter says that we are to do together as God builds his temple in us and through us. Here's the first thing. Jesus is the cornerstone of the temple. If we're going to build a temple that is honoring and pleasing to God, Jesus is the cornerstone. Look what it says in verse 4. Peter begins by saying, you are coming to Christ who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. Now historically, the cornerstone was the most important part of any building. The total weight of a structure rested on that particular stone. If the stone was removed, the whole building could collapse. So it was the cornerstone that brought stability to the structure. But the cornerstone not only brought stability to the structure, the cornerstone was key to keeping the walls straight. You see, the builders would take sidings along the edges of the building. If the cornerstone was set properly, then the stonemasons, the builders, could be assured 
that all the other corners of the building would be at the angles they needed to be. And because of that, the cornerstone became a symbol for all of the things or the thing that holds life together. And so throughout the Old Testament, the people of God were looking for this, this thing, this, this one who would come, who would be able to bring stability to life, hold life together, and make everything right, everything straight. The prophet Isaiah said it this way. He said, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Look, I am placing a foundation stone in Jerusalem, a firm and tested stone. It is a precious cornerstone that is safe to build on. Whoever believes need never be shaken. Isaiah said, there is coming a stone, a cornerstone, that you will be able to build your life on. And when you do, if you build your life on that cornerstone, your life will never be shaken. The prophet Zechariah gave us a little more information about who this cornerstone would be. He said from Judah will come the cornerstone. He made it clear that this cornerstone that was coming, that would bring stability to life and to the world, would come from Judah. The psalmist even prophesied to us that this cornerstone that was coming would be rejected by many. David said the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And we know that happened with Jesus. When Jesus was here walking on the earth, he was rejected by many to the point that he was nailed to the cross. Throughout human history, Jesus has been rejected by the masses. In our day, the majority of people reject Jesus. And listen, until Jesus comes back, the majority of the people in the world will reject Jesus. But nevertheless, he is the living stone, the cornerstone that defeated sin and death so that you and I can become living stones in God's temple. Now today, the cornerstone is more symbolic, a formality, than it is needed. And because of that, there are many people that look at Jesus the same way. They say, well, Jesus is no longer a necessity. He's no longer the foundation. He's no longer the cornerstone. We can take him or leave him. But I want you to know that's a lie from the enemy. Jesus is still the foundation. He's the cornerstone for our lives as believers, and he's the cornerstone for our church. You see, the church is not built on moral issues, though the church should be striving to show the world a morally pure church. And the church is not built on social justice, though the church should be striving to bring justice to everyone in the nation and the world. And the church certainly isn't built on political platforms, though the church should be engaged in the political process. The church's foundation, the church's one foundation, is Jesus Christ our Lord. He is the cornerstone upon which we build on. The Apostle Paul said it this way. He said, no one can lay any other foundation other than the one already laid. 
and that is Jesus Christ. He is the one we worship. He is the one we serve. He is the one we pledge our allegiance to. He is our only source of hope and strength. Jesus is all there is. Jesus is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. When there was nothing, there was Jesus. Before anything was created, he was there. And it was through him that everything that has been created has been created. He has power over everything that has been created. And for us who know him, he is the image of the invisible God. God in the flesh. Jesus was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He died an atoning death. But understand, sin could not defeat him. The grave could not hold him. He overcame both by being resurrected from the dead. He ascended up into heaven and today he is making intercession for each and every one of us before the throne of the Father. But one day, one day, he is coming back for us. And when he does, he will rule and reign on his throne forever. You see, Jesus is the one we worship. He is the one we serve. He is our only source of hope and our only source of strength. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come into the Father except through him. There's no other name under heaven given to man whereby we can be saved. Jesus is not one of many. He is not the best of a few. He is the only one that we worship. That is why we will never, ever bow our knee to moral relativism. That is why we will never give in to pluralistic theism. We have one Lord, we have one King, and his name is Jesus. Peter reminds us that the stone that was rejected by man was chosen by God. It doesn't matter who rejects Jesus. He has been chosen by God. And those who reject him, he becomes a stumbling stone that results in their judgment, which has already been set. But for those who place their trust in him, he grants forgiveness and mercy and grace. Listen to me. Jesus isn't the main thing. Jesus is the only thing. And everything we do flows from Jesus and out of a relationship to Jesus. If you ever go to a church where Jesus is not the main thing, run, get out of there. Jesus is the cornerstone upon which the temple is built. But the second thing that, that Peter teaches us is that we are to function as priests in that temple. Peter says Jesus is a living stone, but then he says that we are living stones that God is building into his temple. You see, God is in the middle of this construction project. He is building his church, and every time someone places their trust in Jesus, they become a living stone connected to the cornerstone that is part of the temple that God is building. 
And the Bible teaches that you are a vital part of that temple. You. Now, some of you may say, I'm not a vital part. Oh, yes, you are. The Bible tells us that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you are a part of his church, then he has given you gifts and abilities that are needed as he is building his temple. And if you are disengaged, if you are not involved, if you are not using your gifts and abilities, then one of the stones are missing from the wall. A key ingredient is missing. You're vital. Now, Peter teaches us a a variety of things about who we are in, in this passage here. But the primary thing that he teaches us is what I want us to zero in on. In in verse 5, he says we are holy priests. And then in verse 9, he says we are royal priests. You see, God has called you as his child to be a priest in his temple. You were called to be holy, set apart. The priests in the Old Testament were holy. We're not going to deal with that. We talked about that last week. But he says you're also a royal priest. You're a royal priest because you're a part of Jesus' family. And because you're a part of his family, you have royal blood coursing through your veins. You're a holy priest. You're a royal priest. That's why one of our core beliefs is the priesthood of the believer. You see, we don't believe as a church that I'm the priest of this church or the pastors are priests of this church. You are as much a priest, if you're a follower of Jesus, as I am. I'm not your priest. You're not my priest. You don't need to come to me to offer confession of your sin. You're a priest. You don't need to come to me To go to God. You're a priest. You've been given that right through Jesus, our great high priest. Now, in the Old Testament, a a priest had two primary responsibilities. The first one was that they would be God's representative or they would be man's representative to God. In other words, a priest would go to God on behalf of the people. Offering sacrifices to God. And so as a priest, you have a responsibility to go before God on behalf of other people. Now you say, Rocky, what are you talking about? Well, for instance, do you know some people who are far from God? That are lost? Then you have a responsibility to take those people before the throne of God. Praying that the Holy Spirit will convict them of sin, their need for righteousness, for, for, for that they will understand there is a judgment that is to come. You have a responsibility to bring people's needs and hurts and pains before God. You have that right and that responsibility as a priest. You are to make intercession to our Father on behalf of people. You don't need people to do that for you, though we do it for one another, right? We're priests together in the family of God. So a priest is someone who goes to God on behalf of people. But a priest is also someone who represents God before the people. 
And so a priest is someone who goes out into the world proclaiming and showing who God is. Now, one of the primary things that the priest did on a daily basis is they offered sacrifices. When we think about sacrifice, we think about the sacrifice of atonement that was once a year. But sacrifices were made by the priest every day of the year on a regular basis. And the Bible says here in verse 5 that we are to offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. As priests, you're to offer sacrifices. What in the world does that mean? I mean, do we need to build an altar in our backyard and sacrifice some animals? Is that what this means? No. Fortunately, the New Testament tells us the kind of sacrifices that we're to offer. And so, let me give you several. Let me give you four that the New Testament teaches. The Bible teaches that as believers, we're first of all to offer ourselves as sacrifices. Paul said that in Romans 12. He said, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. That is your spiritual act of worship. You offer yourself to God. Let me ask you, have you done that? Have you offered yourself to God? And when you offer yourself to God, you're not holding anything back. You can't partially get on the altar. You've got to give yourself. So what you're saying is, God, where do you want me to go? God, what do you want me to do? God, what that I have do you need? Everything that is us, we give to God and ask him, use it for your glory, use it for your honor. We offer ourselves as sacrifices. Another sacrifice the Bible teaches is pleasing to God is praise. In Hebrews 13, verse 15, the author of Hebrews says, Through Jesus, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. And so a sacrifice of praise comes out of our lips as we confess and praise the name of Jesus. That's why, listen to me, when we come into corporate worship, we don't come to watch people perform. We come to worship. And so when you're sitting there or standing there and we're singing songs of praise and worship, you don't sit there and just enjoy the show. No, you get involved in worship to God. You're offering sacrifices of praise. Now, inevitably, someone always says, well, I can't sing. Well, join the club. Probably two-thirds of us in this room can't hardly sing. But that doesn't keep people from trying to do it. And you know what the good thing is? I really like this. If you're really off key and the person next to you can sing on key, it's just going to make them sing louder because they're trying to drain you out. And so we're all just praising God and it's all good. And so we offer to God the sacrifice of praise. And then the very next verse tells us that we offer to God a sacrifice of good works. In verse 16, he says, And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. And so when you and I help people who are in need, in a variety of ways, that is a sacrifice that is pleasing to God. We're driving down the road. We see somebody stuck changing a tire. And we get off the road and say, hey, you need some help. That's a sacrifice 
of good works to God. I don't need to tell you how we do this, but you probably know each and every week opportunities that come into your life where you can do good works that is a sacrifice that brings glory to God. And then Paul tells us that when we give our resources, we offer our resources to him, that's a sacrifice that's pleasing him. Paul said this, he said, I am generously supplied with the gifts you sent me. They are a sweet-smelling sacrifice that is acceptable and pleasing to God. You see, whenever we give ourselves and the gifts, the abilities, the time, the talents, the treasures that God gives us to use for his glory. That is a sacrifice. And as priests in God's temple, we are called to regularly offer sacrifices. And so Jesus is the cornerstone we build upon. We are to function as priests offering sacrifices to God in his temple And then third, we are to invite other people to be a part of the temple. I love the last part of verse 9 in the message translation. The verse starts like this. It says, but you are the ones chosen by God. And then the latter part of verse 9 says this. You are the ones chosen by God, God's instruments to do his work, to speak out for him, to tell others the night and day difference He has made in you. You see, we are called as his priest to tell others the night and day difference he has made in our lives. Here's what I know. I know this beyond a shadow of a doubt because the Bible teaches it. If you've been saved, God's made a night and day difference in your life. Now, you may have been saved when you were a little child and you weren't out there doing all kind of crazy things. But I can tell you, God's made a night and day difference in your life. No matter what you came from, no matter what age you were saved at, God has made a night and day difference in your life. And we're called to tell others about that night and day difference. Everywhere we go. And here's what I know. Unfortunately, I stink at this more than I shine at this. Just being transparent. I mean, every week that goes by, I can give an illustration after an illustration after an illustration of an opportunity I had that I didn't take advantage of. And I, and I don't mean that I was standing there and God says, share, 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 because he's already told me to share. I'm talking about he put someone before me and I didn't do anything to share the night and day difference God's made in my life. And, and I wonder, I just wonder, what would happen if all of us who are priests in the temple began to every single day look for every single opportunity to tell someone about the night and day difference Jesus has made in our life. It it could be handing somebody a track. It could be telling someone, because all you've got is 10 seconds, I just want you to know God loves you and he has a plan for your life. It could be sharing the ABCs of salvation. I don't know, but, but what would happen if we really began to take seriously our responsibility to tell people the night and day difference. You think, you, you think that it could change things? Here's what I know. 
in several generations, the New Testament church took over the Roman Empire. Several generations. They didn't do it because of a revolt. They didn't do it because they infiltrated the political machine. They did it because in the face of death, they proclaimed Jesus. While they were being beaten, they proclaimed Jesus. When they were in prison, they proclaimed Jesus. When they went to the marketplace, they proclaimed Jesus. Everywhere they were, they proclaimed Jesus. Why? Because he made a night and day difference in their life. What would happen if we did that? You see, that's what God wants us to do connected as a family of faith, a body of believers, his temple. He's the cornerstone we build upon. Each and every one of us are priests in this temple, and our responsibility is to tell others the night and day difference. Let's make a commitment. Let's do it. Let's change the world because it needs changing. Now, some of you here, you may never have surrendered your life to Jesus. You've never made that commitment, that first step. You know it because you know that he hasn't made a difference in your life. And if that's you, and today you're ready to stop doing it your way and just surrender your life to Jesus, I want to give you that opportunity. And so would you bow your head? Would you close your eyes? And with your head bowed, your eyes closed, if, if you're here and you're ready to surrender to Jesus, I want to encourage you to pray this prayer to him right now. Dear Jesus, I humbly come to you acknowledging my sin, my rebellion. I've been living life my way. Forgive me. I don't want to live this way anymore. Jesus, I'm turning from sin. I'm turning from my self-centered living. And I'm placing my trust in you. I believe you died on the cross. I believe you rose from the grave so I could be forgiven. I'm giving everything to you right now. Come into my life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Make me brand new. Thank you, Jesus, for hearing my prayer. Thank you for saving me.